Good. You're doing that good, huh? You're clapping for yourself now. I'm doing great. Yes. All right. Well, for the eight of you who are doing that good, feel free to amen loudly while I preach and, you know, wave a hanky at me if you want, whatever. Wow. Well, if you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, that's where we're going to be this morning for the remainder of our time together. I remember taking a class in beginner psychology in college. It was one of those things, those 100-level classes that they make everybody take regardless of your major. So many of you took it. And I remember being introduced to a lot of different psychologists and their theories. And to be honest with you, I didn't enjoy the class. And uh, I don't remember how I did in the class. But there was one psychologist in... uh, Uh, one psychologist that I remember probably more than all the others, his name was Eric Erickson. And Erickson had this concept of these stages of life, these psychosocial stages, if you will, where when we're impacted by the world around us, we either go in one direction or another as human beings. And as I was reading those psychosocial stages, even at 18, I remember thinking, is this guy a Christian? Now, I don't know that he was, But the things and the longings and the values that every human being are after seem to be represented in this this list, if you will, of these stages of life. And there's eight of them. Well, the last two stages were the stages that really grabbed hold of my attention. And I remembered especially the last stage, and I've preached from this concept before. But uh, the last two stages were particularly of interest to me as I read this passage In Luke chapter 9, Erickson said, and you don't have to take Erickson as gospel or anything, this is just a theory, but Erickson said that the last two stages of human life is one, generativity versus stagnation. Are you generating something, creating something in your adult years, or are you just stagnating? And then the final stage was ego integrity versus ego despair. The ego integrity people were the ones who clapped for themselves when I asked how they were doing. Yes, I'm doing great. Life is good. Ego integrity versus ego despair. Do I look back at my life and go, yeah, my life mattered. It's mattering today and it mattered yesterday. It mattered 20 years ago. I've made a difference versus ego despair. Boy, I wish that would have gone differently. As a pastor, you run into ego integrity versus ego despair people all the time. And I want to remind you, perhaps the greatest definition of ego integrity versus ego despair was Ebenezer Scrooge. That day after he wakes up from the visitations of Jacob Marley and the ghosts, even at an advanced age, he recognizes that he can start new and that he can make his life mean something. What if I could look at you today, whether you're 13, 33, 63, or 83, What if I could look at you today and say, Jesus wants to offer you a life well lived. He wants to make sure that instead of stagnation, you generate something with your life. He wants to be sure that at the end of your life, you're going to be full of integrity about the way you lived rather than despair about the way you lived. What if I could tell you today that Jesus wants to offer you a life well lived? Would you take it? 
would you take it? If I could guarantee that he could, would you? Most of you would say, well, certainly I would take it. Well, the problem is Jesus often subverts what is normal to us. He gets underneath the foundation of who we are and how we've done things, and he wants to break away the foundation and start building something brand new. And we're going to find in Luke 9 that if we want that life well lived that Jesus wants to guarantee us, we might have to change the way we do a few things. Luke chapter 9, verse 20, or let's go, yeah, let's go verse 20 and following. Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the anointed one, the Messiah of God. Now he sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and killed and on the third day be raised. And then he said to them all, If any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves. Take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Talk about subversive. Talk about different. Talk about destroying preconceived notions. This is what this passage is all about. And I need to set the context for you because perhaps some of you in your Bibles have these things separated out by subtitles. And sometimes those subtitles can get away from the full message of what's being conveyed. You see, Jesus was this incredible teacher. He was attracting huge crowds. He was displaying amazing power. He had a compelling message that was reaching people from the lowliest of socioeconomic statuses all the way to the highest of socioeconomic statuses. He appealed to men and he appealed to women. He appealed to Jews and he appealed to Gentiles. He appealed to people who would consider themselves the worst of the worst and he appealed also to those who consider themselves the best of the best. Jesus has stood toe-to-toe in debate, if you will, with the most important people of the age. Jesus was also Jewish and Jesus also loved God the Father with all his heart. So when he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Rightly, they look at him and say, you're the anointed one. You're it. You are sent from God. And we get it, that you've been sent from God, or at least Peter got it. And of course, Matthew has a longer uh, version of Peter rehearsing this to Jesus and then Jesus' particular response to Peter. Here we get Jesus' response to the crowd, the rest of the disciples who were standing with him. But what's interesting about them saying, Jesus, you're the anointed one. You're sent from God, and we're, we're sure of that. Jesus looks at them and goes, shh, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. He ordered them what? Sternly. Sternly. Not to tell anybody that he was the Messiah. Why? Well, because the Jews of that day had a very clear concept of what the anointed one was going to do. The anointed one, the Messiah, the one that came from God, according to the Jews, was the one who was going to give them national autonomy once more. 
he was going to boot out Roman overlords and make the Jewish nation the nation of David and Solomon. He was going to make this nation once more, and he was going to be their king and their leader. And Jesus says to them, hold on. Yeah, I I am the anointed one, but I I don't think you get it. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer and die. Now, that wasn't on anybody's list of things that they would expect the Messiah to do. In fact, it was very subversive for him to say, well, actually, guys, uh, this Jewish kingdom that you have in your mind, uh, this is not what's going to be established. In fact, I'm going to go and suffer and die because I am the anointed one. Now, that's confusing, and it confused the disciples, and most of the disciples didn't, didn't even understand that up until the day of his death. But Jesus is not just saying, well, I'm going to die for, for the sake of dying, because the very next thing he says about dying, he says something about himself. He says, yes, I am the Messiah, but don't tell anybody. And then Jesus refers to himself as something else. Did you catch it? Verse 22. The Son of Man, Jesus' favorite self-designation, the way Jesus likes to refer to himself throughout Scripture. Now you say, okay, well, what does that denote? Well, what that denotes is that Jesus was once again looking at these people and going, I don't think you fully grasp who I am. You might think that I'm the Messiah, the anointed one who's going to come and save the nation of Israel, but I've got bigger fish to fry. Up on the screen in just a moment, you're going to see Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and following. And it says this, and for those of you who have the NIV or any other translation than the NRSV, I'm going to read the first verse just like it would read in the Hebrew. Even for those reading in the NRSV, there is a a note because the true Hebrew says this, I saw one like the Son of Man coming out of the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. So when Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, he's not just saying I'm immortal. And immortal, not immortal. Immortal. He's saying, I'm not just a mortal, I am the son of man, the one who is going to rule all nations and all people one day. I am coming to bring God's kingdom to fruition. God is taking back the world, and he's doing it through me. So yes, I'm the son of man, but if I'm going to have an everlasting kingdom, it stands to reason that I would need to defeat death first. You can't do everlasting if you're dead. And of course, we know that Jesus died for the sins of the world, that he might establish this system, and he rose again so that truly he could be the only one who had the ability to ever create an everlasting kingdom, one that had no end. You have to defeat death in order to do that. And so there's lots of plays on words and lots of different things going on here in chapter 9 of Luke where Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the anointed one of God, but I'm not just some Jewish regional leader who's going to be a warlord and knock out the Romans for one generation. We'll have a country. I'll die and it'll be over. He's saying, I'm the son of man. I am the son of God, the anointed one who's come from heaven, and I am going to establish the kingdom of God on earth, and I'm going to do it by my death. And then resurrection. Now, some of you may be going, that's a lot of theology for Sunday morning. I only had one cup of coffee. 
Well, listen, we're, we're going to get away from the theological side of this now, but you might say, what does all that theology have to do with me? Everything. The theology has everything to do with you. See, one day God will take this world by force, but before he does, he desires to take the world by choice. And Jesus says, if I'm to do this the right way, I'm going to do it humbly. And I'm going to die on behalf of the people who need to be brought back into communion with God. And that's hard work. But I'm going to do it anyways because I love the world. I'm not just going to come to the earth and take over a world where no one wants God to be in their lives. Where no one wants uh, Jesus to be part of their lives. Instead, I'm going to go and I'm going to display God's love for all humanity. I'm going to rid them of their sin, and then I'm going to invite them to come work in the kingdom of God to take back this world by choice. See, Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God, but he wasn't just preaching, know Jesus, and then one day he'll welcome you into eternal life. Jesus was welcoming people into the kingdom of God. It was a message, as I mentioned earlier, that was appealing to people of every socioeconomic status. It was appealing to people of, of both genders. It was appealing to people of, of all different types of nationalities. And the kingdom of God was, God is retaking this world. Believe in me and become a part of that. What could Jesus offer someone living in squalor and poverty? He could offer them two things, generativity, and he could offer them ego integrity. You can create with God exactly what you were meant to create when you were born. doesn't matter how the lack of money that you have. Oh, I live in a patriarchal society and my gender isn't the right gender. Well, guess what? You can take part in the kingdom of God. You can generate and create with God to take back this world. You could begin to live the way God intended you to live. What he was offering through the kingdom of God when he said, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand, he was saying, you know what? There will be an eternal kingdom, one by which we are all united with God, but until that point, there is hard work and real life to live, true life and a life worth living. Will you take it? Will you take it? The initial people who responded to the message of Jesus, I believe, were not so worried about their eternal destination as they were worried about, do I need to respond to this Jesus and what he can offer me right now? Right now. Jesus is offering a life worth living. He's offering you the opportunity to serve God, the one who created you, to serve him with all your heart and to create with him, to change the world with him. Will you do it? Three things that Jesus sort of brings out to us when he begins to turn the page and say, hey, if any of you would follow me, if any of you want to take part in the activity that is the kingdom of God, if any of you want to start doing what God's called you to, here's what you need to do. People who want to live a life well lived, Jesus says, must die daily. Daily. Must die to themselves daily. Why? Why must you die to your habits and your patterns and your, your sense of self-determination? Why do you got to die to that stuff? Well, because what's normal to you and what's normal to me is what's got this world messed up in the first place. 
the patterns and, and the habits and this concept of self-determination that we have, what we bring upon ourselves and say, I'm going to create in my life exactly what I want to create in my life in the circumstances and I make it all happen. And I, that's what's got the world in a mess. We're all sinners. We miss the mark. We're all transgressors. We get off the path. That's what those terms mean, to get off the path and to miss the mark. We're all people who are not quite living the way God intended us to live. Unless you think that you are. Unless you think you're not a sinner, that you never miss the mark. Unless you think that you're not a transgressor, you never get off the path. If that's the case, ask your closest relatives what they think about that. I mean, I don't think there's anybody here who your relatives upon your death are ready to build a monument to you in their front yard. Nobody, nobody's ready to worship you, so I'm pretty sure you're a sinner and a transgressor. And the habits and patterns and the self-determination that you grab a hold of in your life is part of what has this world messed up. Now, if you've never hurt anybody, if you've never been hurt yourself, you've never said anything stupid, you've never done anything stupid, and you don't plan on doing anything stupid in the future, well, then ignore the rest of this message. Because you are, well, divine. But if you are not divine, if you were actually created by God, maybe you want to tune in. Isn't it interesting that Jesus uh, harps on the way people pray? It just drives him crazy. Don't keep on babbling like the pagans. Stop that. Just pray. Don't, don't, pray, don't pray so people can see you and hear you and think you're spiritual. Just pray. He says that when you pray here, here's a prayer for you. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Talk about a prayer that just undermines our sense of self-determination. Undermines the habits and patterns that we've been living in. And says, your kingdom come and your will be done right here, God. You see, Jesus had an agenda. And his agenda was to take a look at human beings and go, uh, and I don't know, I think it's Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? That self-determination. How's that going? All those habits and patterns you lose yourself in, are you any more happy for them? All your hobbies that just bring you joy for a moment, have they really bettered your life? I'll tell you what will better your life. Serve me in God's kingdom. Try to advance God's kingdom. And for those of you who don't know the working definition that we have here at Victory Life for God's kingdom, we call the kingdom of God the effective will of God on earth. The effective will of God on earth. So if we had to expand the kingdom of God, we expand God's effective will the way God would want it to happen here on earth, as opposed to the way we humans do things and mess things up. We want to expand God's effective will here on the earth. So people who want to live a life well-lived must die daily. Second, Jesus says, if you want to preserve the way you're presently living, I want to tell you that you're really dying. If you want to preserve the way that you're present, all of these are pulled from the text, by the way. You can look down there. I'm just putting it in my own words. If you want to preserve the way that you're presently living, you're really losing your life. Because the way that you're presently living is not quite what God intended. If you really want to save your life, if you really want your life to mean something, give it over to me. 
I've been using this line with young adults for years and years. I've just said, if God created you, it stands to reason that he did so with a purpose. So if God created you, and it stands to reason that he did so with a purpose, wouldn't it be important that we seek out God to find the purpose for our lives? Talk about a philosophical statement. Wouldn't it just make sense that we would want to know what God created us for and put us here to do? And Jesus has said clearly, I am telling you what God has put you here to do. It's to take part in advancing the kingdom of God. Why won't you be a part of this? Living in God's kingdom is the only way to live a life full and free. Living wrapped up in this world system, it's killing people. It's killing generations of people. And in eternity, it's killing people as well. I remember a couple of years ago, I was building towers with one of my daughters. I don't remember which one. We had these little wood blocks, you know, the ones with the letters on it, and then a picture on the other side, and we were building towers. And so I saw my daughter, and she was building the tower, and she was just building a very single stack as high as she could. And she'd get to 10 or 11 blocks, and when she would get done with 10 or 11 blocks, that single block tower would do what? And every time, you might want to cover yours, every time that tower went down, what did I hear? Ah! She'd just scream. She'd lose her mind. And so I thought, I'm going to come in and be dad here. So I got down on the floor, and I said, I can't remember which one it was. I just said, this is what we're going to do. I said, we're going to build a bigger base here. And then we're going to build it, and we're going to taper it, and we're going to, and she looked at me, she said, no. (laughs) And so I just said, all right, well, you build your tower, and I'll build mine. And I start to build my tower, and she comes over And in her two-year-old way, said, that's not what we're doing, Daddy. And she starts forwarding the blocks (laughs) to build her tower that never gets any higher than 11 or 12. So I'm sitting there going, honey, what we need to do is we need to build a a wider base, and then we need to taper. No! We're doing it this way. And we'd get to 10 or 11, and then, ah, all over again. It just kept going over. It was the most frustrating thing ever. She was resisting reason. She was resisting everything that I knew because I was the father and I got it. But she'd been doing it that way. And she was going to continue to do it that way, even if that tower fell over every single time. You see, the purposes of God resist and are resisted by the habits, the patterns, and the powers of this world. And we sometimes, as Can I call one of my daughters petulant? Petulant children go, no, I'm doing it this way. This is the way we're doing it. And God's going, why? We can build an awesome tower. And we'd rather have something that just collapses over and over and over again as long as we're the boss. Over and over and over again, as long as we're the boss. And I ask you the grand question that Jesus was asking the people that day. Why would you want to be lost? Why would you want to ignore your true identity? Why why would you want to lose the, the generative ability in your life by just pursuing this and that? I mentioned a little bit earlier, I was a young adult pastor for eight years, and 
it was always amazing when I'd see 18 and 19-year-olds start drifting away from the church. And sometimes I'd even call these people, and I'd talk to these people, and they would always say, you know, something like, oh, I'll get back in there, or I'm finding myself. I'm just trying to find myself right now. Finding yourself apart from your creator is like swimming in a parking lot. It's painful. It's stupid, and you're going to get nowhere. That's what finding yourself apart from God really is. What you're really saying is, I'm taking control of my life right now. God may factor in later on. We'll see. But you don't have to be a young adult to do this. You don't have to be someone who's 18 to do this. I see 42-year-olds and 62-year-olds doing the same thing. They're walking and stepping away from God, trying to find themselves, trying to find true happiness in habits and relationships and this and that. But they're missing that if God created you, it stands to reason that he did so with a purpose. And if you want to find that purpose, it stands to reason that you should seek God. Jesus says it. I just put it my way. Jesus says it. You want to lose your life or you want to save it? Don't try to save the control. It doesn't make sense. Jesus is giving a direct contrast to both philosophical and practical atheism here. Philosophical atheism says there is no God, so I can do things my way. As I showed you months ago with Richard Dawkins and the atheist bus tour, God probably doesn't exist, so stop worrying and have fun. That's what the atheist mantra. I'm in control. I'm going to do it the way that I want to do. I'm going to create meaning for my life apart from God. But there are people today, some of you sitting here, you're a practical atheist right now. And you might have prayed some prayer called the sinner's prayer years ago. And you might have been baptized by some pastor years ago. You might even sit in church from time to time. But you're a practical atheist because you're saying, you know what, even if there is a God, I'm still going to maintain control. It's just practical atheism. You might not philosophically believe that there is no God, but you are living that way regardless. So what of us who want to be found? What can we do if we want our lives to count? Because I certainly want a life well lived. And I know most of you do too. If you want to have a life well lived, let's take some words here and some concepts here from the scriptures. And I'm going to give you three E's this morning for those of you taking notes. First, if you want a life well lived, you need to establish your identity. You need to establish your identity. You've got to lose the identity that you've always been, that person you've always been, and you need to establish an identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I follow Jesus. He says, if anyone would follow me, that's your new identity. I remember as I got late in my high school years, I began to do a lot of music, and I was involved in different music groups, a lot of different singing opportunities. And the more I was involved in those, the less and less I came to church. I'd have things on Wednesday nights, I'd have travel weekends, and I was finding this new identity as someone who was popular because of my talent in that area, and I had friends at school, and and all of a sudden my friend base shifted from my church friends to my friends at school, and all the extracurricular activities that I did. But I was still here most Sundays, and I was still here most Wednesdays, but my identity was beginning to change. I wasn't a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ so much as I was just me. 
And I had a level of acceptance and a level of popularity, and so therefore the church didn't mean so much to me anymore. And you say, well, did you still go to church when you were home? Yeah, but when I got to college, it was very easy for me to go, well, you know what, I'm not Matt the musician anymore, and, and, and I'm not that guy I was in high school, but I really need to make money. I got to get through college. I got to make some money so I'm not in loads of debt. And so I would take these long shifts at work, even on Saturday night till 2 and 3 in the morning. And then I'd wake up the next day, I'd watch some football and just ignore church completely. And I remember in the afternoon, every Sunday, my dad would call, and I'd be horrified because I knew what was coming. (laughs) Hey, Matt, how you doing? Good. You having a good week? Yeah, having a good week. Did you go to church today? No. Now, my dad was telling me over and over again, Matt, you got to get into church. You got to find a church family. He was saying that over and over and over again. And I'd say, Dad, I go to to school-mandated chapel two, sometimes one time a week. I go to the chapel. I'll even be honest with you, I had a system figured out. (laughs) Chelsea and Jody, don't listen to this because they go to my college. At least at that time, you could miss two full months of chapel, but as long as you attended 80% in the third month, you wouldn't get suspended from school. I love January. January was a good month. No, anyhow, so... But I tell my dad, we have mandated chapel, dad. But you say, okay, so that's funny. So you would get in these fights with your dad over church. Here's the truth, though. The less and less I went to church, the more and more I strayed from the Lord. Wow. I mean, mind-blowing, right? (laughs) The less and less I went to church, the more and more I started doing things my own way. And we've said it before, and we'll say it again, this pulpit, in this pulpit, it's been said for years, sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go, it'll keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and it'll make you do things you never thought you'd do. That's what happens when you start to lose your identity. And I want to tell you people today, and it's, it's my experience, but it also is the Lord who created the church, you have to have a church family. And you have to begin to find your identity in this place. Not so that we can be like, hey, we're all church people and we're weird together. Not at all. Our goal is not to be weird together. But if your identity is not found in your church family, you are offering nothing as as a Christian when you flow into your rec leagues and your ensembles and your book clubs and your PTA meetings. You're not going to have the strength and the ability and the capacity to minister in those places unless your identity is found within the church family. You're not going to have the power or the strength to do that. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. There are none. That's why Christ established the church. The church is not your identity, but the church should be the place from which you continue to build up your identity. Because people will help you become the person that God created you to be. People will instruct you. People will give you opportunities to serve that pull you out of your self-determination. And so I just want to say that to you today, that Jesus just didn't preach this, but he also established a community from which people could live this. That was really good. That's not in my notes. I'm going to say that again. Jesus just didn't preach this, but he established a community from which we could live this. It wasn't meant to be done alone. And I want to tell you, you can ask yourself, is my identity slipping away? Am I determining my own identity through my friends or my hobbies or this relationship I'm in or whatever? Or am I a Christian? And do my habits and hobbies show that I am? 
Establish your identity. That's number one. Number two, examine what you get lost in. Examine what you get lost in. I want to tell you today, there is an enemy of our souls, and he would have you get lost in anything but what really matters. He would have you get lost in things that don't really matter in life. There are so many things that we engage in, and they're not necessarily bad or wrong. They're fine. It's just that we get lost in them, and the next thing you know, we're losing our ability to serve, and we're losing our ability to give, and we're head cases. These could be your food choices. These could be books, television shows, friendships, video games, social media, things you just get lost in, and you look at the clock and go, whoo, how the time has flied or flown. Flied. I didn't do well in grammar. Anyhow, (laughs) some of you are going, yeah, I've read your emails. So anyhow, uh, you get involved in these activities and they just go and they go and they go. Oftentimes when somebody tells me that their teenage boys are depressed, I'll look at them and I'll say, how much video games are they playing or how long are they playing their video games? What do you mean? Well, is that what they live for? Are they coming home from school so they can get to their video game? And do they play it and fight with you? Hey, go, go make your bed. No, I'm playing my video game. Hey, get ready for bed. No, I'm playing my video. You can get lost in these things. And I want to tell you, that's fine. Because the enemy would love an entire generation of Christian men playing video games living in mom's basement. They would. They would. And if not for the grace of God, I'd probably be one of those guys. I would be doing Call of Duty right now. I'd be wearing something in my ear just like this, but only talking to my three weirdo friends, right? (laughs) Let's get in there. Let's shoot them. Let's do it, right? Seriously, these things are depressants. For those of you who your entire life is wrapped up in, in just friends, I encourage you, have friends. Have lots of friends. Friends are good, but friends are not your identity. Jesus is your identity. And if your friends are not people who are leading you towards Jesus, but you're getting lost in friendships that are pulling you towards Je- away from Jesus, we're in a bad spot. Examine what you're getting lost in. You all know how I feel about social media. I last posted on Facebook sometime during the Bush administration. I'm on there. I message people back and forth. I don't write a lot on my wall or whatever. I'm on there. I know that's not even cool anymore. When I was coming out of college, everybody was on Facebook. Now Facebook's like, oh, the nerds are on Facebook. Did you know you're a nerd? Anyhow, there's all these different social media outlets. Well, let me ask you, when you're done on your social media outlet or when you're scrolling on your phone like this constantly, are you more depressed? Are you more angry? Are you more lonely? Or do you find yourself needing to affirm yourself by taking a picture anytime you're with another human being? (laughs) Hey, people will know I'm popular. Let me send that out into the ether, right? What are we doing to ourselves? We're getting lost in nonsense. We're getting lost in things. Now, I don't care if you post a picture of you and your friends. I don't care. The question was, are you needing to affirm yourself through social media? You see the difference here between just being part of the culture and not in a bad way and getting lost in things. I need people to know that dot, 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 I went, I went with, I am dot, dot, dot. You see, the enemy of our souls wants us to get lost in this stuff. 
I see people of all age ranges getting lost in books and television shows and novels and all types of things, and they begin to make that their identity. Now, granted, I might have dressed up as Gimli one time to go see a midnight showing of Lord of the Rings. I may have done that. Okay, I did do that. But I want to tell you, Gimli was never my identity. And the costume was awful. That's never my identity. But you know what? People are getting lost in the silliest and the stupidest things because all of them want to be part of something special. All of them want to be part of something great. And Jesus has offered us the most special thing that a human being could ever be a part of. And that's to serve the purposes for which you were created and to live your life for God and to change this world for him by choice before the day comes where the Lord comes and takes it by force. Now, I know what some of you are concerned about. You say, I don't want to become a freak and I don't want to become some super spiritual weirdo. And I want to tell you, by examining what you're lost in, that's not going to make you a freak or some super spiritual weirdo. In fact, Jesus was not quite into super spiritual weirdos. I feel like the Lord would say to some of us today, give me the one who visits a sick person over the demonstrative worshiper. Give me the one who takes a meal to a family in need over someone who can pray eloquently. Give me the one who will humbly share a testimony with their buddies or co-workers over the one who will preach up a storm on Sunday. Give me one who will work and sweat on a hot summer day at an outreach over the one who can speak eloquent Christianese. Give me the one who will invite a new church attender to lunch at their home over one who flaunts their vast biblical knowledge. Give me one who looks at their church as a place from which to save souls rather than a place to be religiously entertained. Give me those people because those people live real life. You see, you can get lost in religion, too. The trappings of looking religious while not actually serving God at all. Third and finally today, we need to engage in life-giving activities. We need to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Now, before we get to that, I want to say something to you, and I want to be clear on this. If you're too busy to learn more about the word of God, to pray or to attend church, you are losing your life. You are. Because in the Bible are the life-giving words of God. When you pray, you're putting your confidence and trust in the God who wants to use you. And when you attend church, you are being built up to be used for ministry. If you're not doing those things, you are losing your life. But let's say you are doing those things. I want to tell you, you can still just as much lose your life if you make it all about religious things and religious rituals and the trappings of religion. You can't stop there. That's the starting place to get filled up, but then there's a place to minister from. It's time to start using your life to minister. It's time to start using your life to advance the kingdom of God. And if you can't identify the places where you're doing that, chances are you're losing part of your life. We don't want that for you. God certainly doesn't want that for you. In two weeks on a Sunday, there's a ministry fair. You can walk down the hall and say, I'm serving nobody, I'm serving nowhere that I can identify. Lord, give me a place to serve. It'll get me started. For those of you who need connection and built up in the church, 
There's revamping of all types of ministries around here, men's and women's and youth and young adults. There's places to get connected if you really want to fill up so that you can go live life as God meant for you to live it. But I want to tell you today, the most important thing in the world, the most important thing to keep your mind of is on is this true life that Jesus offers. It's not about patting yourself on the back and it's not about all the experiences that you have. It's saying, listen, I'm not getting lost in the things that don't matter. I, 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 I have an identity and it's as a disciple of Jesus Christ and I'm engaging in life-saving activities for both me and the people around me. I'm not losing my life, Jesus. I'm living it for you. John Piper, the great author and former pastor of a church up in Minnesota that's uh, had a lot of popular books in the last 20 years, said when he was stepping into his pastorate, he was talking to one of the former pastors at the, at the church, and he was talking to him on his deathbed. And he went into this former pastor, and he was going to visit him as he was dying. And the pastor looked up at John Piper as he relates it and said, Pastor John, the greatest thing in all the world is being saved. Now, if saved just means eternity, we've lost the world. Did you hear what he said? The greatest thing in all the world is being saved. That's why Jesus says to die daily and live true life. Yes, we will be rewarded in eternity. We will see Jesus coming in glory. But there's a life to live before we get there. And living a saved life means engaging in life-giving activities and serving Jesus with all our heart because it's what we were created for. So that we can truly say, not just as some statement of Christianese, but truly say in our lives, the greatest thing in all the world is being saved. My life is saved. I'm going to get to the end of my life and go, I did it for the Lord, and I'm confident that what I did was what he had me to do. Praise the Lord. The greatest thing in all the world is being saved. As the band comes, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank and praise you for your message here today. Lord, I pray that we would not get caught up in just the habits and the patterns and the self-determination of this world. I pray that we'd not get lost in stupid hobbies where we could be pursuing real change in this world and working for you. I pray, Lord, that we would commit to saving our lives rather than losing it because the offer is full and free. You've given it to us. Lord Jesus, we pray today as a congregation that we would move closer into the will of God and further away from the stuff that just doesn't satisfy, the stuff that truly isn't purpose or meaning, and this ridiculous sense of self-determination. Lord, we pray that we'd be found in you and that we'd be full of life. And Lord, that we could say all our days that the greatest thing in life is being saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.